but you'll find that the facility's directors in the event that a hurricane hits, they're not at home, they're at the hospital. They're trying to make sure that their hospital is running, that there's nothing that is, is gonna to happen to the patients or to the caregivers and to address any related issues that come up. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of Let's Talk Solutions, Candid Conversations with Healthcare Leaders. I'm John Amos. And I'm Amy Fritzer. And this week we'll be discussing what a facilities management program is in a healthcare facility and how it plays such a critical role in a hospital's delicate ecosystem, especially in terms of creating a healthy and healing environment for the patient. It's almost like running a city and how most people don't really understand all that's involved. And today we're going to be joined by Steve Wipert, VP of Facilities Management with HHS. He's got over 30 years of experience in various leadership roles in facilities management and support services in healthcare. Uh, he's been everything from a self-employed facilities consultant to a director of support services, to a safety officer, to a regional VP, as well as a hospital administrator. So lots of experience and we're super glad to have him, have him on the podcast. All right. Well, welcome, Steve. Thanks so much for for joining us today on the podcast. Um, to get started, we just kind of wanted to hear about you and your background and, and how you kind of got into facilities management. Well, thank you, John. Um, back in 1987, I graduated from Michigan State University uh, and found myself working in a hospital, um, which wasn't my original plan. Uh, but it ended up uh, becoming the uh, lifelong pursuit and uh, have been working in hospitals uh, since 1987. Um, and I've run everything from, uh, from facilities management to uh, the kitchen services, all of the support services, as well as construction. So uh, over the course of those years, um, having received a lot of uh, certifications and education in the facility side of the business, uh, that's really where I've honed my expertise. You're kind of a jack of all trades. I, I am. I've, I've actually been a hospital administrator. So. Oh, really? Oh, you really have done everything. Yeah. I didn't know that. What did you study at Michigan State? You're going to laugh. <laughs> Psychology <laughs> and criminology. Really? Yes. So what did you want to do before you? Well, uh, I was actually doing this while I was going to college. Uh, I was a police officer uh, for for a while. And um, so I did that. I I always said that that was um, 5% complete and total boredom and 95% sure terror. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so going into facilities management was a little bit more um, not as as uh, you know tear driven. <laughs> no, but it was uh, once I got into the facilities management uh, portion of for hospitals, it really became a natural fit uh, to go and learn about how to engineer. A facility, how a facility runs, uh, you know, very much like the human body, uh, you have uh, your facilities run, uh, you, you know, it has a life stream 
that runs through it. So it has the air conditioning system, it has water systems, um, power systems. So like your beating heart, uh, you have these mechanical rooms that encompass the components that run a, a, a hospital very much like uh, like a city runs. And in fact, the uh, you know I often equate the uh, hospitals to small cities because they have to run 24/7, 365. They don't ever shut down for holidays. And if they, if uh, if portions of the facility are not working, then you are putting uh, people and patients in jeopardy. Yeah. So, so Steve, since we're talking about you know facilities management and and programs and like you said, making the facilities run, can you kind of more break down or explain what exactly is involved, all the components of a facilities management program for a facility? I know you mentioned you know the boiler rooms and water systems, electrical systems and stuff, but there's obviously more to it than just that. Well, there's a tremendous amount to the facilities. In fact, most people don't even ever see what is behind the walls running those facilities. Uh, So you have very costly equipment. Um, There are large components within those facilities like boilers, chillers to to chill the water, uh, to keep the air conditioning going. there's emergency generator power. You have all of your electric coming into the facilities. You have uh, uh, medical gases and medical air equipment that uh, maintain the, the facility and, and patient safety. And all of those items are, are uh, installed and equipped to provide a uh, a suitable environment that helps patients to recover. You also have to do it in such a way because a lot of those patients can't can't ambulate out of a facility by themselves. So you have to build these facilities in such a way as to protect the patients in the event of a fire or any other type of emergency. So facilities go through a lot of planning for utility interruptions, for natural disasters, uh, because you can't just evacuate patients. It's just uh, it's not, just not possible. So uh, the components that run those facilities are critical uh, to maintaining and, and operating efficiently and play a strategic part in the outcome of patients. I'm curious to... Um since there's so much emergency pr- preparedness that goes into to a facilities um, management program, I wonder if you've got any stories um, just about uh, either a contingency plan coming through and working or not working. I'm sure you've got uh, some some horror stories, but but anything that that off top of mind that you think's worth sharing? Yeah, they, there's probably one great example. I was working at a a, a very large hospital, about 300 patient beds. And the chiller units uh, were about 40 years old and really were on their last leg. We knew that at some point in time, these chillers were going to ultimately fail. 
And the hospital was going through a uh, merger at that point and really didn't have the capital to invest to replace those chillers. Uh, so what we did is we did a risk assessment based on what happens if and when those chillers go down. And we understood through that risk assessment that we would lose part of the laboratory, that uh, some of the uh, surgeries would have to be canceled, um, and that it would overwhelm the radiology department uh, and we would lose a lot of the equipment in radiology. So based on that, uh, on that evaluation, we were able to understand what the consequences were going to be ultimately. And in, instead of putting money and capital into the plant itself because they just didn't have it, we developed a risk mitigation plan where we stubbed out a chilled water pipe so that in, in the event, and it did eventually happen, uh, where those chillers went down, we, we had a, a rental chiller on standby. So I had worked with our, uh, one of our local uh, HVAC companies. They had a chiller uh, on standby for me, and it really became a plug and play. So as soon as those units went down, which was about 18 months from the time that we did the uh, contingency plan and risk mitigation, uh, we actually had to implement that plan. And we saved the hospital from uh, having to shut down, from canceling surgeries, from interrupting patient care, and what people don't really think about either is well, how does that look or sound when it gets to the media and what does that do uh, for the hospital's reputation? So we were able to, to save uh, all of, all of the uh, revenue that you would normally associate with patient uh, care and throughput and also mitigated uh, the potential for uh, media uh, negative media um, for that facility. Well, it sounds like one of those contingency plans probably would be something that any program would have, right? I mean, obviously, the hospital doesn't want its chillers to go down. And I would imagine that part of, like you were saying, um, you know, thinking ahead and doing the risk assessment, that it would be important for them to say, look, in case this does happen, we should have this in place. Or do you think it would be important for them when they're laying out a program, for example, that they actually, instead of waiting for, you know, obviously planning for the worst case scenario, but maybe planning a little bit better in terms of having capital aside or, you know, for a, you know, a catastrophic failure like that? Or is it something, Steve, that you think is just the plan would be just overall better maintenance of those systems so that something like that doesn't happen? There isn't a failure, for example. Yeah, a well-run organization, facilities organization, understands that you have to do both of those. So uh, so to tackle your, your first part, which is around contingency planning, you really want to conduct a risk assessment of all of your critical systems. 
So we know that down here in where I'm at today in Houston, uh, that it's prone to hurricanes. So as a, uh, as a regular event, we assess and conduct risk assessments and planning in the event that a hurricane hits. Now, if you're out in California, you would do the same thing for earthquakes. So you are always undergoing a, a risk assessment and have contingency plans in place. But the other part of your question, which, which is excellent, is how do you go through and look at all of this vital equipment that runs your facility and develop a strategic plan for the organization to understand where they are with their uh, with their equipment. So whether it's a roof, a boiler, uh, any of those items, that where is it in the life cycle, and how is it performing today, and those vary from region to region. So you'll have. Uh, You'll have equipment that is exposed uh, near the ocean that will deteriorate much quicker because of the salt uh, salt air than it would if it was in the north. So understanding where you're located, understanding the equipment, and then planning for capital uh, strategic capital funding for the organization so that it doesn't become a surprise, that they understand that, you know, this roof is uh, 30 years old. We're starting to see a lot of leaks in it and we can patch it up to a certain point, but we need to plan in the next three to five years, a roof replacement. And that helps when we're able to do a full facilities capital action plan, then we're able to help those organizations develop strategic capital as assignment and, uh, and try and take away as much of the, uh, oh my gosh, this just happened, uh, and more of, uh, we're, we're planning for this, we're making sure that we are, uh, we're strategically allowing and placing our capital dollars in the areas that we need them. Yeah, that makes sense. How how do you plan for a hurricane? <laughs> or how does a facility, how does a facility um, like in Houston, how do they plan for that? I mean, obviously we know they could hit us anytime in, sure. during hurricane season. So what do you do? Does have flood, you know, prepare for that or? Well, <clears throat> one of the critical components is uh, during a hurricane is that a loss of power. So hospitals have emergency generators. So ensuring that that emergency generator is tested on a weekly basis, and there's requirements around how often you need to test those emergency generators, but knowing within the facility what equipment is on the emergency generator. So they won't put the entire facility, or most places do not put the entire facility on, on generator power. So ensuring that you have, uh, we call them the red plugs, 
and a red plug indicates that that is on emergency generator. So if you have a ventilator, for example, you'd want to make sure that that is plugged into a red outlet in the event that you lose power and the uh, generator comes on. You also have to make sure that you have enough uh, fuel to run that generator for an extended period of time. So we are, uh, we're, we're normally uh, planning for a minimum of 96 hours before we would have to refill uh, our, our fuel. So that, that's part of that planning and part of the risk mitigation uh, is making sure that you have uh, a well-run uh, facility emergency generator so that you're not going to lose electricity. So that's one, and and also I've seen a lot of organizations in these prone areas that have sandbags. And so that they're strategically placed around entrance doors so that the flooding doesn't come into the building itself. So there's a lot that goes on. And uh, you'll find that the facilities directors, when there are events like this, they're not at home, they're at the hospital. They're trying to make sure that their hospital is running, that there's nothing that is going to happen to the patients or to the caregivers that are there and to address any any related issues that come up. So then do you guys get bids on roofs too? Well, we do. Um, So part of our our facility capital action plan, so the strategic capital planning, we go out, we will actually get bids uh, as they are today, and then we'll uh, project those out for CPI in the future. So the, today, a roof might cost you $100,000, but if you're planning for it in five years, you have to adjust for inflation and and, and then update your um your cost estimates based on the year in which you want to conduct the the um, replacement itself. I'm kind of curious. We've talked a lot about obviously contingency plans, um, some about preventative maintenance, but I, I kind of want to uh, shift gears a little bit. And I'm always um, kind of wondering, you know, when when we have these conversations, it's it's easy to talk about the ideal, the way things should be, the way facilities you know, programs should be run. And then I, I always wonder what, what's the reality of, of how that plays out. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on kind of the overall state of the industry in terms of facilities managed for healthcare. What are some of the challenges being experienced? Where do you think the industry as a whole um, can improve on? What does it do well? Yeah. As it becomes more and more uh, competitive in the healthcare environment today and with reduced uh, reimbursements, hospitals operate on a much lower margin than than people would expect. And you'll read where a health system is making, um, you know, a good deal of money, but in reality, it's it's a small portion of their uh, overall revenue. So from, from a revenue perspective, their, their margins are pretty, pretty light. Uh, 
the facilities component of a hospital isn't really something that most people think about. They're thinking about the things that directly impact the patient. So, for example, a a new CAT scan or a new MRI. And I call those the the sexy uh, parts of the building. They're, they're the parts that you can, the hospital can uh, advertise, uh, can, a physician can know that they have the latest and greatest of these pieces of equipment, and they're very, very expensive. What that does, however, is, is force hospitals into wanting to maintain or uh, run their facilities infrastructure for as long as they can, because that's not really where they want to put their money. And so I always use this analogy is, you know, if you buy a beautiful brand new sports car and you pay $150,000 for that car, I I can't afford that, but some people can. if you, you could run that for, you know, quite a good period of time, but if you don't maintain your vehicle through uh, oil changes, through fluid changes, through a tires rotation, you'll run that vehicle up to a certain point, and then it's going to fail, and you've just lost uh, that equipment, your, your vehicle. And that was a $150,000 investment that could have lasted probably two, three, four times longer. So part of the facilities uh, business that we do is we look at how do we conduct preventive maintenance to extend the life and likelihood that the equipment will not fail. And will actually function beyond even the manufacturer's um, recommendations or expectations. So we put together a very comprehensive uh, preventive maintenance plan for all the pieces of equipment in the facility. And that means uh, tightening belts, greasing motors, uh, greasing uh, ball bearings in a motor, uh, changing filters on a regular basis. There's a, a tremendous amount that goes into a well-conducted uh, preventive maintenance plan. So we're actually helping the facility to reduce its uh, its costs, and particularly its capital costs, by maintaining the equipment at such a, a rate that we can extend its life. And all of that plays into, again, right back into the capital plan, where we know uh, if we've been maintaining that equipment and can prevent doing the preventive maintenance, that at some point in time, it will fail. Um, Eventually, that $100,000 car will ultimately fail at some point in time, uh, unless you keep it parked in the garage. Uh, but these are these are pieces of equipment that run all the time, 24 seven. 
And so we know uh, that we can extend life through a, a good preventive maintenance program. Uh, but ultimately, we need to look out into the future and help those organizations strategically plan for uh, for you know uh, replacements. So I I think that kind of ties back to your analogy of it being a city, uh, too, because you know the reasons people move to a city or like a city, you know, the re- the food scene, you know, the the cool bars or whatever. But without water, without power, without the the infrastructure that you need, no one's thinking about that when they choose to move to Austin or move to wherever. But those things are critically important. Um, and so I think that works for that analogy too. But that also brings me back to, uh, I think you mentioned it in that in that answer you just gave. Um, but the you know the hospital runs twenty four seven. The equipment's running twenty four seven, and it has to it has to keep running twenty four seven. And while you're putting in a preventive plan uh, to make sure that stuff doesn't fail, so that patient care doesn't get disrupted, you also need to not do anything that disrupts patient care with the routine maintenance of it. Right. So I'm kind of curious what how do you how do you conduct you know routine maintenance and those things in a way that's not disruptive. Um, and in an environment where, you know, it's busy all the time and, you know, it's running, running 24 seven. Great question. Um, this is again, like New York city, you know, the city that never sleeps. Right. Um, and I so that was the, Vegas. Well, <laughs> actually it is. I, I lived there for three years and I loved it. Um, but uh, but hospitals really, I mean, they, like you said, they, they never shut down. And the environment itself has a significant impact on patient care and patient outcomes. So that involves, is there a lot of noise? Is there, what's the air quality like? If you are working on equipment, are you doing that in a... Um, in a way that is less disruptive to the patient. And so fortunately for us, a lot of the equipment that we work on in facilities is either above the ceiling or in mechanical rooms that the patients are not exposed to. So if we're changing filters uh, in the air handling units, that's done in a, a mechanical space. So you don't have to worry about interrupting the patient. Now, if if uh, the TV is out, a light is out, um, it's hot or cold in that patient room, then we may have to go in there and interact with the patient. What, what we try to do is make sure that that is a very positive interaction with that patient. So we'll go in and we'll introduce ourselves. We'll tell them what we're there to do and how it's going to help them. And just engage the patient. So it's bad enough being in a hospital, not really knowing what in the heck is going on with, with your health in a lot of cases. And it's scary. And so the mechanics play a critical role if they go into the room to ask them, ask the patient, how are you, how are you doing today? Not so much in terms of, of their health, 
but from the environment perspective and to uh, and to really spend a little extra time engaging that patient and asking them if is there anything else that you need well yeah you know that faucet over there's been dripping and you know it's kind of bugging me well we can go take care of that right now and so that open communication um, talking to them you know we've all had loved ones uh, that have been in hospitals and uh, and understanding when somebody walks into that room uh, what it is that they're there to do and why they're there and, and to communicate. What do you think are some of the perhaps popular misconceptions or thoughts that administrators may have, you being a former administrator, that perhaps you often overlook when it comes to facilities management? I mean, like you said, it's not sexy, right? I mean, Right. Well, I think there's a, a number of misconceptions. Uh, the maintenance mechanics are, are really work decentralized. So it's not like they're sitting in a cubicle waiting for somebody to, to call and, and being able to handle that at that location. So they're out in the environment. They're out on the floors. They're in the mechanical rooms. And so one of the misconceptions is, is that sometimes people and administrators just don't really know what it is that the mechanics are doing. And that's a function of being decentralized. Now, we're able to overcome some of that through uh, computerized maintenance management systems where we track work orders and we're able to demonstrate the work that is being done and, and conduct analytics that demonstrate the productivity of the employee. And I'll give you one example. Somebody might think, you know, well, to replace a light bulb, uh, it, it should take you 10 minutes. Well, that light bulb might have actually been a ballast that needed to be replaced. That turns it into a whole different situation. So I think there's a, a misconception that somebody just spent 30 or 45 minutes working on replacing a light bulb when they were actually replacing the bulb plus the ballast. What's and a ballast? So <laughs> it, 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 it's what, Is that the piece that screws into? It's, it's the, uh, it, it's, it runs the energy through the, through the, um, the fixture. So if you have a, those four light fixtures, you'll have a ballast, but the, so one of the other misconceptions is that the, um, the mechanics are play a, a very large role in controlling the overall utility cost for a hospital. So they're in looking at and monitoring uh, boilers, chillers. They're making sure that these are running at peak efficiencies so that you're not using as much electricity if uh, if you just left it run full blast. So we will be looking at equipment and making sure that it's running to its best optimization, which means not running it at full speed all the time when it doesn't need to be drawing 
tremendous amounts of electricity or water. Um, and so we have a, a huge impact on utility costs for the organization. Have you noticed, just out of curiosity, since you brought that up, like are, if you're running certain some of the machines at you know high efficiency and whatnot, have you noticed a significant ROI associated with that or like a reduction? Like, look, we've been able to reduce our electricity bill 10% or 15%, which that's a lot of money. It, absolutely. And, and it wasn't too long ago um, we switched from T12 light bulbs um, to LEDs. And the LED is a far more efficient light fixture. And it produces better lighting even. And it does so at a much lower cost. So most organizations in the last several years have gone from either T12 or T8 lamps to LEDs. And uh, going to these to the LED lighting has had a dramatic impact on energy costs. We'll also look at opportunities where you can put in light sensors. So lights aren't left on uh, by mistake uh, for long periods of time in an unoccupied room. And we look at those, you can look at those through a lot of, uh, a lot of different systems. There's building automation systems that help you look at the facility and understand where the energy is coming from. Uh, and where you're spending the most amount of your um, your utility dollars, but utilities are, play a huge component. Uh, unfortunately, some of that is uh, is, un, or is unregulated and purchased on the market, and a lot of the facility managers are responsible for uh, purchasing and hedging uh, natural gas purchases. And we're hearing even uh, today that there could be a huge spike in natural gas expense for facilities. Um, that's a that's something that's just based on either speculation in the market or from the economy itself. Uh, but these are all huge impacts to an organization. So we, we've made it this far without talking about COVID, but um, I, I do have a question in terms of, because as we're talking about, you know, advancements in technology and, and going, you know, green, um, you know, green buildings, the well building certification, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, there's all these advan advancements going on in the commercial space, right? And Tesla and, and all this stuff and solar power. And, you know, I know... Um, Typically, you see those trickle into other industries over time, healthcare being one of them. And, you know, when COVID hit, um, there was a lot of um, talk about, you know, how, how much this is going to um, accelerate the switch to digital I mean, a lot of, in a lot of things, um, in a lot of industries. And I'm wondering, as far as facilities go, if COVID had that impact in healthcare, if there is uh, more or less or the same um, kind of a push to, to accelerate and adopt some of the technical, technological advancements that we're seeing in other places. Well, 
COVID had a huge impact throughout the entire healthcare industry, uh, including the facilities components of it. Uh, early on in the pandemic, uh, there was not a lot of guidance as to whether or not this was an airborne or a contact uh, pandemic. And, and we did learn that it is spread through droplets and, um, and people are wearing the appropriate personal protective equipment. But most hospitals have very few or limited isolation rooms where they have patients that are highly contagious uh, with, with uh, um, diseases, you know, like I mentioned earlier, tuberculosis. And so it quickly overwhelmed the facilities in terms of their ability to house COVID-19 patients in isolation rooms. The facilities departments really jumped in at that point and had to, to really problem solve. How do we manage this facility, these patient rooms, this wing within the hospital so that we can um, convert regular patient rooms to negative pressure rooms? And how do we how do we do that? And so uh, a lot of organizations relied heavily on their facilities departments to, to really develop a plan to uh, create negative pressure areas within the hospital that had never existed before. So you saw modifications of patient rooms, uh, installation of air scrubbers and um, other types of machinery that you would put into a patient room and create a negative pressure environment so that it's pushing all it's exhausting the air. So you're you're getting your air from the building, but then you're completely exhausting it outside. And that was a critical and uh, really difficult time for facility managers to come up with solutions to renovate very quickly patient rooms during this pandemic. Uh, because like I said, the, the amount of isolation rooms are limited. Uh, they're expensive to have. You're, uh, you have to have an ante room. But how do you do the best you can do uh, in a regular patient room and create that type of environment where you're helping to minimize the the spread of uh, COVID and, and, or any other pandemic? Especially when you've never experienced it before. I mean, how do you, it's hard to plan for something like that. I would imagine maybe the future of facilities management might entail that might be a component of it, maybe. Yeah. It, so back in in uh, in earlier part of my career, I actually sat on the um, state of Michigan's terrorism task force, and in that task force, I I was one of two people to represent the hospitals in in the state of Michigan, and we 
looked at um, how we would deal with not necessarily a pandemic, but a chemical attack. And so anthrax or other types of of, um, terrorist type of events, which ultimately helped us to have some of these plans sort of in place for the pandemic. Um, So we've seen some really, really bad flu years with influenza. COVID uh, made this uh, far worse uh, than than any time since 1917, and uh, and the facilities managers uh, really jumped in and completed the modification of of patient rooms, uh, took out windows, put up uh, plexiglass or boards and exhaust units in those rooms to create a negative uh, a negative pressure relationship. It's almost like they were the unsung behind the scenes heroes almost. Well, you know what I would I would say that anybody and everybody that worked in a hospital uh, during this time is uh, a hero. And that includes the facilities, maintenance mechanics, but the, the housekeeping staff, the nurses, anybody and everybody that went into those environments to help during uh, during that pandemic are, to me, our heroes. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. So to, uh, you know, kind of simplify things a little here, Steve. So why is a facilities management program so important? Well, you know, that's a great question. Um, and I, I guess the best way for me to really bring this home is uh, we've all had family members that have been in, in hospitals. Um, but I had a, I had a pretty uh, unique situation personally. Uh, when my youngest daughter uh, was five years old, she went into atrial fibrillation. And, uh, and all of a sudden I found myself being not the hospital administrator, but the parent. And it really, it really puts you in a different place and you understand how important everything is to the care of, in this case, my five-year-old daughter. And of course, you know, being in the business, you know, I'm hypersensitive to everything um, and, you know, very critical of anything that potentially would not be in my eyes, you know, helpful to my daughter's recovery. And, uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll stop there just briefly and just say everything worked out fine. Um, at the end of the day, she's now 27 years old and a wildlife biologist, uh, living her dream on the Island of Kauai. But that was done. That was, a result of the incredible care provided by the Children's Hospital uh, in Detroit at that time. And 
them ensuring that my daughter had a uh, uh, the ability to be treated and recover and to even make sure that my wife and I, you know, were at least in an environment that was not making us feel worse. The last mm-hmm. thing that we needed was to think about or have to think about um, the building, whether it's hot, cold, whether the air is is circulating properly, whether there's electricity uh, flowing consistently throughout that facility. Knowing that the facilities department there, uh, and I I knew a lot of them personally, uh, that they were professionals, they knew how to do their job, and they provided that environment that I didn't have to think about as a as as a parent with a sick child. And so I could concentrate on what was really important. But if the if the building had been uh, overly hot, if anything had had gone wrong in the building that had an adverse impact into uh, my my daughter's recovery, uh, it, that would have stuck out. But I guess by by it not occurring, and those are the things. I mean, that's the that's kind of where I call everybody who works in these facilities heroes because they provided that environment, and I didn't have to think about it. It's all about the patient and the healing. That's right. So did that experience kind of change your perspective and your approach to to your job and your role in in healthcare facilities management? Well, you know what? It did. (laughs) And uh, in a a way that I have taken forward today and as I um, mentor new facilities managers and so what I did at the facility that I was working at at the time, um, shortly after all of that, I actually uh, got on a stretcher and had people push me through the building so I could see from the, from the patient's perspective what the building looked like. Are they looking at stained ceiling tiles? Are they looking at leaks? Are they looking at... Um, vents that are clogged with dust. Um, so I really wanted to take another look at the facility from the patient perspective. And oftentimes us in healthcare, we got our blinders on a little bit because we're so busy trying to, to fix or repair that we're not thinking about uh, the perception or, or how other people are perceiving the, uh, their surroundings. And that's why I also encourage all of our mechanics to take the time to engage the, the patient or the patient's family 
make sure that they are comfortable and let them know that we care. That's great. Awesome. Well, um, Steve, for someone listening, listening to this, um, what would you say are kind of the biggest takeaways you'd want to leave them with in terms of the importance of facilities management for, for a hospital and in healthcare? Well, the, the importance is, is making sure that you have a, a strategic plan and outlook on your facilities. You want to make sure that you are looking at and maintaining your facilities to the best of its ability to, to extend the life of the equipment. You have to have a good, solid program, well-trained mechanics and employees, uh, well-supported and staffed and allow them the ability to uh, to make the repairs and corrections uh, that they need throughout the facility and, uh, and allow them the voice to assist an organization, not only from a strategic uh, financial perspective, but also from a day-to-day operational uh, perspective from energy utilization. And we're getting more and more green as we go along, uh, and that has a significant impact on the organization. And just finally, uh, we should always, everybody should be looking at the facility itself from the lens of the patient or the patient's family. And we uh, and make sure that we have good communication with the, with the maintenance staff and understand the challenges that they go through. Wow, that's that's great. Thank you so much, Steve. We really appreciate you being here and giving us all your insight. It was great. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Thank you. I um, I certainly learned a lot, and um, you know, I, I was um, grateful for for the way he he kind of incorporated um, the impact on the patient themselves. You know, all that stuff that nobody thinks about. Um, you know, there's. The, the facilities managers are the people thinking about that, making sure that, you know, yeah. that we never have to think about it. And yeah. so that was a, a cool perspective, um, an important one, I think, think for us to, to cover. Yeah, I agree. And I, I loved how we close it out, basically saying, look, I encourage everyone to look at it through the eyes of a patient. If they notice a dirty ceiling tile or a crack in the ceiling or a wall or, you know, the, the most minute things that if you take the time, to look at it from a different perspective, you might see something else. And because at the end of the day, a facility is there to, to help a patient get better and heal. So I just thought that was really cool. Yeah, totally. Awesome. Well, thank you everybody for joining us for this candid conversation about the value and the impact of facilities management and healthcare. Yeah. And thanks again, Steve, for joining us and bringing your expertise. And thank you all for listening. We hope you've learned some valuable insight today. Everybody be sure to follow us um, and tune in for our next episode with another healthcare leader, um, wherever you guys listen to your podcasts. And for more tips on healthcare, uh, you can follow the HHS blog at www.hhs1.com. Till next time. Thanks, guys.